Welcome to 100 Plus, where we're looking at the greatest people, events, and ideas in church history. This week, Mike Woodruff will focus on the fall of Rome and also provide a brief overview of the development of Western civilization. Today we consider the fall of Rome, which was a, a massive implosion of global significance, one with profound implications for the world in general and the church in particular. Uh, in light of uh, the topic of today's lecture, it may seem as much um, like a discussion of, uh, of Western civilization as it does in church history. Uh, I'm okay with that. I think a better understanding of how the West unfolds uh, does help us with some of the puzzle pieces that need to fall into place uh, and even to understand our own lives. Uh, before we jump in, let me note a few things. Uh, first, as I have said a couple of times already in earlier episodes, when people use the term Rome, they can be referring to several um, very different things. So some, um, there is an entity called Rome that was founded in the 8th century BC uh, on um, the banks of the Tiber River. It's a small little enclave. Rome can also be used to refer a thousand years later to this vast empire, 1.9 million square miles. Basically, um, at its zenith, Rome encompasses most of Europe, uh, much of Western Asia, North Africa, the Mediterranean, and it has the largest army that the world will ever know. Um, likewise, the term Rome can refer to a kingdom, that is to um, uh, an entity that has a king. Uh, it can refer to a republic, uh, that, that is, it has some form of democracy going for it. Uh, it will also refer to an empire, where you've got an emperor who's sort of all-powerful, uh, Rome was at various times all of these, and then later it will call itself the Holy Roman Empire, although, as the joke goes, by that point, it was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. So the term Rome refers to a variety of different things, and you have to keep that in mind. Secondly, you should understand that one of the reasons many people are interested in, in the study of Rome is because it helps launch what we call the West or um, Western culture. This is another term that is not particularly well understood. It gets used in different ways by different people. Uh, just a couple years ago, a friend and I went to a lecture that was called How Abraham Lincoln Shaped the West. Uh, and we were both excited because we thought he was going to talk about Western culture. He was just actually talking about the Western United States. So uh, there's a variety of different ways that the term gets used. Most of the time when people talk about the West, they're making a distinction uh, between the U.S. and Western Europe as opposed to Eastern Europe, right? Stuff associated with uh, the former Soviet bloc countries, uh, Russia, China, those kinds of things. The term East and West actually goes all the way back to the 5th century. And it is helpful to us to think, when we think of Western civilization, to think about this marriage of, uh, of the Hebrew prophets, of the Greek philosophers, the Roman conquerors, and how that is sort of the genesis for what is going to develop through the Roman Empire, through the Middle Ages, into Europe, uh, into the United States, and beyond. Uh, a third reason why people sort of clue in and uh, perk up when we talk about Rome and why its fall is so important is because um, it's this massive empire that dominated the world. There's nothing quite like it, but also um, because it allowed for um, 
it allowed for all kinds of advances that continue to be important, uh, advances that, that influenced government and architecture, art, sanitation, trade, uh, travel. I have a picture in my office, I put it in the email, uh, that I painted of the remains of a Roman aqueduct that uh, is in Greece. And, um, and it's just so impressive to see. This is supposedly was built uh, several hundred years before Christ. And some of these aqueducts are just, uh, they're engineering marvels. I mean, they go for 60 miles where the, the drop can only be a, a, an inch or so in order to move water that far. Uh, and, and so when, when this stopped, when Rome fell and Europe is plunged uh, into the Dark Ages, no one could maintain these aqueducts, and uh, both because there was no organized government, uh, no one you know, paying to keep the aqueduct workers employed, but also because no one knew how. And so if you study ancient Rome, you find that they came up with all these advances in construction that allowed them to build things like the Colosseum and, and uh, millions of miles, square miles, uh, millions of square miles, 50,000 miles of Roman roads, some of which are still used today. And so it's, it's, it's fascinating because there's sort of nothing like it. And then um, the fourth and final reason I'll mention that a lot of people think about uh, Rome today is because they view the United, the United States as being an empire like the Roman Empire. And so you can find lots of books uh, that will sort of borrow this term, Barbarians at the Gate, which is sort of the, the beginning of the end for Rome. Uh, and they'll, they'll use that to describe the United States. And so you study uh, what happens to Rome if you want to try and <clears throat> project what's going to happen to the United States. So um, indeed, uh, there are some. Uh, Rod Dreher is a, a contemporary writer, a Catholic thinker, who will argue that Christians right now need to, um, to respond like the monks did in Europe um, at, at the beginning of the Dark Ages or at the end of the Roman Empire and sort of get out of culture before it collapse so they can create these islands of health and, and wellness and uh, continue to march when the United States Empire implodes. Uh, you'll get a lot, we'll talk more about this because uh, Thomas Cahill wrote a book about this, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Uh, we're going to talk about it when we come to St. Benedict, and, and the Benedictine monks are the ones that get credit for a lot of this. So um, uh, all of that to say, uh, there's lots of reasons why people are interested in, uh, in Rome. I could go on. Um, the Roman Empire lives on. I mean, the, the term czar in Russia is because uh, well into the you know, 19th century, people were, were claiming the term Caesar. They were, they were saying they were still sort of the vestiges of the Holy Roman Empire. Hitler will make some claim to be you know, sort of an extension of Rome and all of that with the Third Reich. So uh, look, today our focus is, is sort of specifically on the fall of Rome in the fourth century. And what I want to do is back up and give you a, a flyover of, uh, of the 1,200 years leading up to that, and then look a little bit ahead up until, from there up until the, the present moment to help you understand a little bit about some of the ways Western civilization has been, um, has been developing. So, in the beginning, uh, Rome was a kingdom. So, in, in pagan lore, uh, Rome was founded by, uh, by the twins, Romulus, where the name will come from, uh, and his twin brother Remus, they, these are the twin sons of Mars, the, you know, the Greek god. 
uh, the Greek god of war. And somehow these, these, um, these young boys were left to drown in a basket on the Tiber River, but uh, they're saved by a she-wolf who raises them, and they sort of live to sort of overthrow this king that had uh, left them to die. And uh, Romulus at some point kills his brother, and so he's the one, Rome is named after him, um, he's the one it's named for. In, uh, that's not a standard historical account. In more standard historical accounts, Rome starts as a small uh, city in the 8th century BC, and it had a king, so it was a, it was a kingdom. So in the late uh, 6th century BC, so in the 500 BC, 500s, um, it, uh, the, the people overthrow the king. There's a particularly bad king, and the people overthrow this cruel king, and it turns from a monarchy into a republic. Uh, the word republic is from the Latin uh, race publica, so the property of the people. The people are going to, we're going to have an early experiment here in uh, democracy, one of the hallmarks of Western civilization. So, uh, look, it, it'll be a little while, but they'll develop a code of laws called the Twelve Tables, and you start to see the first uh, laws written down about civil and property rights just way ahead of their time. Uh, by 300 BC, the real power is going to lie with uh, the Senate, and then during the next couple hundred years, you're going to see Rome, this, uh, this small kingdom, really expand. Military is going to expand, it gains power, gains, expands the borders, uh, lots more citizens. And uh, along the way, Rome will do what, one of the things that Rome does well. So one of the things Rome does well is it wins wars. Uh, they're particularly good soldiers. Another thing that Rome does well is it, uh, it acquires good ideas from other cultures, in particular the Greeks. So the Greeks have got the best philosophy and art and literature and all of this, uh, but they're not as good as soldiers as the Romans. And so uh, the Romans are going to take over all the, yeah, all the ideas, all the architecture, all these, all these ideas from the Greeks and, um, and put them into their, their government. Um, so, um, starting about 100 years before Christ's birth, the Republic starts to crumble. And um, there's various reasons for this. The gap between the rich and the poor is going to expand. That generally is trouble. Um, it's got this complex government, and it's just hard to sort of uh, keep things going. You get too, too big of a civil class. Uh, there are reform efforts, and this is where you're going to get into all these, uh, all this political intrigue with military leaders. It's during this time that in the the late Republic of Rome that you hear about Pompey and Cicero, and then Julius Caesar comes onto the scene, and he's murdered on the Ides of March by uh, Brutus and uh, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, um, and eventually. Octavian, who's a, a great nephew of Caesar, is going to be appointed to be um, the sole leader over Rome. This is in 29 BC, and by 27 BC, he is going to declare himself the emperor. Basically, he's, he's not going to acknowledge the Senate. He is going to be uh, in charge. And um, so then we enter this period where we have an empire. It was a kingdom, then it was a republic, now it's an empire. And under uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, there's this, uh, he ushers in the, the start of the Pax Romana, this 200-year period of, of peace in Rome. And uh, he's going to win a lot of victories. There's going to be uh, 
institutional reforms. There's reforms in uh, an expansion in literature and art and all kinds of things flourish. For, he rules for 56 years. And uh, when he died, the Senate is, is going to vote to declare that he was a god or is now a god. And this will be the start of the deification of a, of a string of Roman emperors. So uh, this line from Augustus is going to go through Tiberius, who shows up in the, in the New Testament. He rules from uh, 14 to 37 AD. So he's, he is uh, going to be the, the, uh, the person at the time of Christ's uh, death. Um, and there's others. Basically, you then uh, the end of that line is with Nero, who I talked about a while ago. He drains the bank. He's crazy. He you know, burns Rome. So look, you can take a class on all of this. There's so much written about this, and uh, I am summarizing hundreds of years of history quickly. Basically, um, you're going to go into the third century and see then this period of, of Roman emperors come to an end. Uh, there's all kinds of series of ups and downs, and then we're going to get to the figure of Constantine. So I, I, I promised you at some point, all these names are going to start to congeal. You're going to start to uh, hear names that you've heard before. So Constantine is the Roman general who defeats uh, his rival, uh, Maxentius, on the bridge of, Mil, um, of Milvian. And then he, is, he believes that he's taken over uh, by, the, by the grace of God, that he conquered under the cross, which is what God had told him to do. He's the one who, who then will become a Christ follower. He'll issue this edict of toleration, the edict of Milan, which means that it's no longer illegal to be a Christ follower. He's going to establish then his capital. The, the, he's, going to, he's going to divide his vast empire. He'll conquer the East, and he's going to establish his main capital being in uh, Istanbul, which is then, uh, it's a small town at the time, um, um, Byzantium, I think, and then he renames it Constantinople, which is, is the, the name for it up until the 15th century when, um, uh, when the Turk, well, when the Muslims are going to take over. So before that, uh, it'll, it'll change its name to Istanbul when the Muslims take over. And then in the 15th century, the Ottomans will defeat the Muslims, and uh, it still has the name Istanbul. But anyway, so Constantine is the one that brings us to the Council of Nicaea. He's the one um, that, that uh, convened it to deal with the Arian controversy. So we've talked about all this. I did an episode on Constantine, did one on the Council of Nicaea. We have been looking most recently at some of the post-Nicaean leaders. Jerome, Ambrose, most, uh, prim uh, most primarily we looked at Augustine. Uh, and these were all sort of Latin fathers and, and remarkably important uh, people in the church. So, uh, by the way, Augustine is going to write, I mentioned this before, he writes the book City of God, and he writes City of God about the fall of Rome because the fall of Rome is blamed by some on the Christians. The argument is that, you know, for 800 years Rome was fine, now Christianity is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. People are no longer worshiping the Roman gods. And for that reason, and for the fact that, that uh, Christians are not good citizens, uh, all of these things are going to uh, contribute to people saying that Christian, Christianity is the reason Rome fell. And Augustine will write an apologetic explaining what Christianity is and saying that's not true. So at this point, uh, I, I hope you feel a little bit caught up. 
Um, so let me say a little bit about the actual fall and then go beyond that. So um, you could spend easily uh, 100 hours and read Edward Gibbon's book, um, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, or you can get my quick five-minute summary. <laughs> Several somewhat um, unsurprising and predictable things happen. Uh, Rome begins to fade. Um, some would say it starts earlier than I'm going to list it. Uh, with, they'll back up to Diocletian when he sort of divides the empire into two pieces uh, and, and really, again, focuses on the east as Constantine had done, and therefore the west grows weak. Um, look, at the end of the day, you've got this big, huge, bloated empire. And you can't, uh, you know, there's, there's not instant communication. And so you're trying to trying to run a war in Syria and you're trying to do it out of Italy and you got, uh, you know, horseback riders carrying messages. Uh, you, you just get this, it's just almost an impossible task to rule this vast of an empire. Uh, the government gets bloated and it's expensive. Uh, additionally, the people become soft. Uh, over time, the rich don't want to do things like go into the military. They don't want their, they don't want their sons to go into the military. And so they uh, will eventually start to outsource their security. And uh, they, will, they will employ these, this, uh, these Germanic tribes that were having problems on the eastern part of their empire. Uh, the Goths, the Visigoths, Visi means west. So western Goths, the Goths, Visigoths, Vandals, Huns. Uh, the, these, are the, these are the groups, the, you know these names, these are the groups that, uh, that they begin to employ to be their warriors. And as a rule, they don't treat them well. They make promises to them that they don't keep. And, uh, but they bring them in, they sort of, they, they get to live within the empire. They don't give them the land they promise. Uh, but, but as these people are fighting for Rome, they get to learn Rome's ways, they get trained by the military, and um, eventually that's gonna be their undoing. So. The first full-out breach of, uh, of the Roman wall is going to come in August uh, 24th, 410, when Alaric uh, the Hun, uh, or the Goth, I've read both actually, Alaric is going to break in. Uh, he's likely a Christian or an Arian. Uh, the key is he had been trained by the Romans to guard them. He had been given a, a lot of promises of land and title and other things that, that Rome is not doing. And eventually, um, after he serves in, in the military for a number of years, he gets disillusioned and he will turn on Rome. So several attempts over the years. Uh, the final one, which uh, leads to the initial breach, follows uh, an 18-month siege you know, surrounding, uh, surrounding Rome and trying to starve the people out. They've done that once before. This time, and I've, again, I, I've read several different accounts of this. The one, the one that sounds the coolest <laughs> is that uh, he takes 300 of his best uh, soldiers and he uh, goes to the gate and he offers them as uh, slaves to the Romans, promising that he's done with the siege and he's giving up and he's not going to disobey again. And so the Romans take in these 300 uh, men who are armed and once they get inside the gate, they turn on, their, uh, they turn on everyone and then open the gate and in comes the army. And for the first time in 800 years, uh, Rome is sacked, and for three days, Alaric uh, and his men are just looting the city. This is the shot heard round the world. This is the end of life as everybody knew it. 
Um, and it's going to take a while for the Roman Empire to break up. It won't be until uh, September of 476 that the last Roman emperor is going to be deposed by a barbarian. Uh, but at that point, uh, the Roman Empire is down basically to just Italy. Every year they just have been chipping away and chipping away. And what happens is, is part of the empire is chipped away. It becomes this little fiefdom. Uh, you've got some sort of king. You've got some knights. Uh, and and they're, they're served by a bunch of um, vassals. Uh, but it's all pr profoundly less exciting than it had been with Rome. Most of these areas are, are poor. Uh, they're just preoccupied with their own defense. They don't want to get run over by the, by the king next door. And so they give little thought to anything other than travel. All the stuff that had made the Roman Empire so remarkable, right? All the, all the trade, all the money, all the architecture, the aqueducts, all these things that have been in place. Uh, all of this falls aside. The classical era falls aside. The schools teaching philosophy and the, the theaters with art, all these things they go away. Literacy, literacy rates plummet and a large-scale social disorder uh, is ushered in. So at this point we enter uh, the Middle Ages, sometimes referred to as the Medieval Period, also referred to uh, as Christendom. And this is going to run uh, the dates vary, but we'll just use the, the most generally accepted ones from 500 to 1500 AD. So again, it depends upon who you're reading. Uh, and some are going to separate out the Dark Ages. So initially, we used to say that uh, back when I was a student, we used to say then that uh, after the fall of Rome, Europe enters the Dark Ages. And Dark Ages, the term was used in a couple different ways. One, it's, it's dark in the sense that uh, it's hard and you've lost, you've lost all the culture and so the lights sort of go out in that sense. Others say it's the Dark Ages because we just don't have nearly as much written about this. We don't have the kind of records that, that we would like that we get from earlier eras uh, or from later ones. So uh, the term Dark Ages is actually falling out of favor among scholars, and so we, we talk more now about 500 to 1,000 being the early Middle Ages. Uh, and this is, um, yeah, this is not, by the way, the Dark Ages are not called dark because it was moral and spiritual decline. There was, there was still spiritual interest. Um, the term dark is a little confusing again. So most people now use the term early Middle Ages. Um, the second period of the Middle Ages is going to run from 1000 to 1300. This is the High Middle Ages, considered by many to be the, the best time. Uh, many think of the Middle Ages as being universally bad. You know, you got the, the Crusades and the bubonic plague and you know, the Spanish Inquisition and feudal lords and chastity belts. And, and uh, it's just all very bad. And most people know virtually nothing about the Middle Ages except from uh, Don Quixote novels, Monty Python movies, and uh, the like. There's actually a lot of really interesting, good times over the course of this thousand-year period. And there's some, there's some interesting things happening. There's some good literature, Canterbury Tales, Dante writes his trilogy. Uh, there's some great architecture that is developed. I just finished a novel, uh, Ken Follett's novel, Pillars of the Earth, about building a cathedral uh, in the Middle Ages. 
Uh, you've got knights and valor. You've got the development of some interesting music. You've got, you've got a number of things that actually are quite good about the Middle Ages. And the High Middle Ages are called the, sort of the glory years. And then you have the last part of the Middle Ages, or the late Middle Ages. So that's 1300 to 1500. And this is actually the period that's under the most review by scholars. And, and there's really two different opinions. Some think that this is a, a time when things are really uh, falling apart. And it's the kind of decay that is going to lead to corruption in the church. The, the, a massive corruption in the church that's going to lead to the call for a reformation. Others see it uh, quite differently. They sort of see it as the headwaters of the reformation. But um, I should just say, we're dividing the Middle Ages into these three periods that scholars do. These are arbitrary divisions and, um, and also quite Western in their orientation because in the East, remember, so the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, um, they're not going to fall. It's just the West. It's Rome and the Western part of the Roman Empire that fall. The East is going to uh, continue for uh, quite some time and they will uh, continue to sort of relaunch themselves. There'll be an effort to relaunch um, the Roman Empire under Charlemagne in 800, and, and he tries to bring some of this back. But um, look, let me step back and say a few things that I think are helpful um, about the Middle Ages. Again, this is a period sometimes referred to as the medieval period or Christendom, because it, it's, it's a time when the church is going to grow and in many senses uh, rival uh, the, the state, you don't have nation states that are developing at this point, but uh, you're going to have a lot of power come to rest with the church. And that, tragically, um, the church will eventually prove Lord Acton's dictum right. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts uh, absolutely. So, um, first part of the Middle Ages, which is alternately called the Dark Ages, were in fact pretty bleak. Uh, the economy tanks, trade stops, sewer and sanitation systems can't be maintained. Schools shut down. Uh, as I said, this is when society collapses. And when a society collapses, it's not that the people die. It's just that life radically simplifies. So I have a book on my shelf when I was doing Future View. I was looking ahead and somebody... Um, somebody suggested to me that I needed this book, uh, read this book, When Complex Societies Collapse. And it's uh, an academic book. I don't recommend it, but it's also pretty depressing. And it just says, look, uh, everything simplifies. You can imagine, I can't, <laughs> like, I can't fix much of what I work with. Can't fix my car, let alone a computer, uh, let alone the electric power grid. I mean, there's so much that we just depend upon this complicated society to work. So uh, when the Roman Empire stopped working, everything sort of collapsed. So the Dark Ages lasted um, a couple hundred years. But, but I want you to understand, it, the church begins to pull Europe out of the Dark Ages. And this starts already in the 600s. The, per, the church begins to push back the night. And uh, I, I mentioned this book by Thomas Cahill, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Uh, and Cahill writes to, to talk about the Benedictine monasteries. These are, these are going to be uh, areas where people are going to care for each other and there's going to be trade and there's going to be education and culture is going to be held on to. And as a, over time, you're going to see the barbarians won to faith in Christ or 
what a lot of the barbarians become are Aryans, again, which is problematic, but some will become Christians. But they move in this direction uh, of understanding the world from a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. And this is going to change everything. So a Judeo-Christian worldview is going to usher in an understanding that the universe is God's creation, human life is sacred, history is linear and moving towards a final goal, nature is an orderly system, humankind is supposed to be stewards, righteousness is, is the right way and will ultimately defeat evil, and that uh, our life on earth does not exhaust our existence, but we look ahead to the resurrection of the dead uh, and to a final comprehensive uh, judgment. So all of this is going to begin to to change the barbarians and and uh, Europe is going to come out of the dark ages and out of the late or out of the early middle ages and move forward. So um, we're going to be looking uh, at the middle ages and events in the middle ages, people and events and ideas in the middle ages for quite some time. Um, so I'm, I just want to give you a flyover so you'll have some categories. So I want, you to, I want you to understand the Middle Ages are not as bad as you might think. Many today uh, mistakenly believe that the Middle Ages were just universally dark and backward. And again, over the course of a thousand years, there were famines, there were wars, there was a plague, uh, there was an inquisition. Um, so there were, there were dark moments, but there were not universally dark moments. And uh, there were advances in a variety of ways. There was life that could be good, rich, family, uh, and early the church. The university is going to come into existence during this time. So um, there was great respect and love for tradition and beauty. There are many things that we can say positive about the Middle Ages. Secondly, the church does grow in power. The, there's a political vacuum when the Roman government collapses and uh, the church is going to acquire a lot of civil power. Um, third, the, the Middle Ages is when the first big split in the church is going to occur. So the second big split is the Protestant Reformation, which you're probably more familiar with. Um, the first one actually takes place in the 11th century, 1054, the Great Schism. There's a divide between the East and the West, between the West, which will be called the Catholic Church or the Roman Church. So this is confusing because the Roman Catholic Church is different than those two things. Uh, as a Protestant, I would certainly say that. Catholic is the term for universal. Uh, and the Eastern Church or the Orthodox Church, capital O Orthodox. So the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox. And uh, we'll, we'll look at this in greater detail. The split is going to come. Um, the, what they'll say they're splitting over is a fight over icons. What they're really more fighting about is the, is the claim by the Bishop of Rome, uh, the Pope, to have uh, power, final authority over all the church. And the Eastern uh, churches saying, no, we don't, we don't buy that. So um, it's during the Middle Ages that the Crusades happen. Uh, this is uh, clearly a black eye. So 1095, uh, Pope Urban uh, decides that he wants to reclaim the Holy Lands. So uh, the, the, you know, Israel had been taken over by the Muslims. And it's decided that they need to be retained in order for people, for Christians to be able to make pilgrimages down there. So he preaches a sermon. 
uh, promising some eternal rewards to those who go down to fight to overtake, uh, overtake uh, Israel. And over the next 200 years, there will be eight different crusades. And if you know much about this, you know that uh, their failures, uh, almost in every way you can imagine, uh, certainly militarily, uh, the, the bad rap is, of the Crusades is perhaps a little bit overstated. Uh, the, the figures of deaths that were initially believed now, the, those have been revised down quite a bit. But um, yeah, the Crusades is a bad move. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, bad move. Uh, Middle Ages will give rise to the Scholastics. Uh, we'll look at this, Thomas Aquinas. Um, this is when, when there's a sort of a, a study of philosophy that will be brought in. Uh, more prominently. Augustine had done some of this uh, already, looking back um, to Aristotle. Uh, the, the scholastics are going to look back even past Aristotle to Plato, a little bit more militant in some of his arguments. And so uh, we've got the period of scholasticism. Um, so yeah, as I said, there's um, some good and some bad. You got some good people, Francis of Assisi, uh, you get the development of hospitals, uh, universities. Will Durant, the uh, famous author of the 11 volume The Story of Civilization, he will suggest that uh, during the Middle Ages the church's charity programs reach a new height and that a lot of, he sees a lot of good things happening uh, during the Middle Ages. Science will emerge and other things. So the Middle Ages are going to take us up to the 1500s. We're then going to see the Renaissance happen. Uh, this is uh, the, the, the term here, ad fontes, back to the sources. So coming as the Middle Ages is drawing to an end, people start to study. They go, they, they're not going to be looking at the Latin Vulgate that uh, Jerome had translated. They're going to start to study in all kinds of ways. They want to go back to the original sources. So they'll be studying Greek uh, and Hebrew. They'll, they want to study Greek to learn the philosophers better. This is going to be part of what's going to contribute to the Reformation because Luther and others will study Greek. Uh, they will go back to the Greek text and see some differences between the Greek text and the Latin Vulgate. Uh, so Luther is going to launch the Reformation. That's the next big period. And, and what we'll see, uh, we'll do a number of times on the Reformation, but it's not simply that uh, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany, and, and there's a change in the church. But the Reformation, first of all, Luther sort of throws a match on a, on a on dry tinder, on, in a gasoline. I mean, it's, things are ready to take off, and it's going to lead to changes in government and art and family and education and all kinds of things, work. Um, after the Reformation, we get the Enlightenment. This is where man is... Uh, uh, elevated, God is dethroned, man becomes the measure of all things. We, uh, we get the, the church sort of pushed down. That's going to lead into the modern era, uh, this idea of science and technology, and progress. Uh, and, and that takes us then at some point, uh, starting the middle of the 20th century, late 20th century, into a postmodern era where a whole lot of things get questioned. And, and that leads us um, um, up to today. Hard to say if we're still in a postmodern era. We'll talk more about that. Obviously, that's towards the end of these 100-plus episodes. So uh, that's a big flyover. There's a lot there. Uh, we go back to more of a church history topic next time. It'll be the Council of Chalcedon, an important uh, time in which 
uh, having looked sort of at the Trinity and some of those issues around Christ and, and Christ as God, there's now going to be a need for the church to establish that Christ was also man or to just recognize this again. These, these councils don't, theology isn't developed here. It's just, um, it's just agreed how we're going to talk about this and it'll lead to the Chalcedonian definition. So that's next up. See you then.